Welcome back to another episode of On the Mic with Mike Peters. This week, my guest is a New York City comedian, Nick Hopping. He just released a killer half-hour special, Giraffe in the Shed. And he's been putting on shows with his girlfriend and co-producer, Samantha Freeman. Nick and Samantha run shows from three places, including their own apartment, which is incredible. So if you're in the city, make sure to check out those shows. The lineups are amazing. Caitlin Palufo will be there on Saturday. Trust me, you don't want to miss her. And Nick, he's okay too. We've got another On The Zoom comedy show happening on Saturday, September 19th. Tickets are available for $5, and you can see Los Angeles comedians Jen Eden and Alex Kane, and your headliner will be Winston Hodges from the D.C. area. Winston's great. He just released a special, Grieving Productively, and all three of them were on this podcast. So go back, listen to them, come out to the show, get tickets online, or you can become a Patreon member for 5 bucks a month, and you get access to every show. But please enjoy this episode with Nick Hopping. Please like, share, subscribe. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I hope they let me in. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's so weird to say that. Like, thanks for being here. You're in your fucking apartment. Yeah, this is this feels exactly like a work meeting right now. Like so far, <laughs> I'm not paying you, by the way. <laughs> Fuck. Uh. <laughs> no, <laughs> where'd you go? Where'd you go? Uh, yeah, right. No, thank you. Uh, this is funny because I I watch your special, and we'll talk about that a little more later. But I cast it on my TV, and I loved it. And I'm like, let me reach out and see if I can get this guy who's on my TV to talk to me. And I was like, oh, that's a new experience. Yeah. Well, I guess that makes it sound good. I mean, it was only on your TV because you put it there. For most people, <laughs> for most people, it is on their phone and they watch it for like three minutes and they go, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. And I was very jealous because I produce a lot of stuff too. And for you to keep comedy going was just remarkable to me. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how it's felt. Like most of the spots I've done in since coming back to New York in August have just been stuff that I produced. So it's been kind of a, I don't know if this sounds douchey, but I feel like I've been keeping at least comedy going for me through kind of just force of will because I'm, right. I'm getting no spots except mine. What do you think you would have done without comedy over the last eight, nine months? Well, I can, I mean, I'll tell you what I did. I made a web series where I just, the premise was like, I learned a new thing every day of the pandemic. So I would make a new episode of that every single day. I ended up making 77, like Jesus. just every single, yeah. And they were good until they were really bad. I just, I got <laughs> so burnt out, but I had decided I was doing one every day. So I would, I would put out episodes when I had just nothing to say. What was the thing you uh, shouldn't have learned? The thing I shouldn't have learned. Um, Like what was just a complete waste of your time? Well, I mean, they weren't like real, I would sort of take fun facts and just riff on them and like make a sketch out of them. Okay. But the last like 10 or so episodes, I mean, I don't, I don't know <laughs> just describe how bad my bits. Just imagine like a bunch of unfunny <laughs> jokes and that's what it's like. I'll play a set of mine and they'll be, they'll get it. <laughs> but you know what though? The one thing, the one thing I did actually learn and take away from it is if you look up any of those like, you know, lists of fun facts, because there's, there's a ton of those lists out there you can find and you'd think, oh, there's, there's going to be like millions of fun facts out there for me to find. There's not. There's like there's like 75 fun facts. And then all the different websites just copy each other's fun facts. I thought finding the facts would be the easiest part. I'll just look it up. But it wasn't. It got really hard. I used every single like available fun fact that you would find on Google. Without. What's your most favorite one? There was one about if you lick somebody's elbow, they can't feel it. And so my take... So I, I say that and I'm like, if you look somebody's elbow, you, you, you can't feel it. And I'm sitting there saying that. And then the, like, the camera pans over and someone's looking at my elbow. And then it comes back to me and I go, but neither can they. And then it pans to their elbow and I'm suddenly looking their elbow. And then we just keep every single time the person whose elbow is being licked goes, but neither can they. And then we're like, it jumps to me look, and keep switching back and forth. It's very absurd and probably not funny when described. But, <laughs> but if you watch it, it's watchable <laughs> it's watchable i that's a great plug Thank like you. nick hopping i'm watchable yeah <laughs> i mean every sketch i wrote and filmed in one after you know inside of one day so even the best one is only so good but i'm happy with about 
probably 15 to 20 of them. And then another 15 to 20 of them, I'm like, I'm sorry, I made that. Um, yeah, but that's 20%. That's not bad. 20, 30%. Yeah. And it, I think it was something good to do. I, I, I learned a lot how, I mean, just how, like how to write and make sketches. You know? Is that something you think you'd want to do? Like, you know, when things open up? Sketches? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. I want to learn how to get good at TikTok. I'm seeing these other oh people God. that are succeeding on it. And I'm like, I, there has to be. And I bomb spectacularly on TikTok. I will get numbers that are lower than I didn't. I don't even know you could get as few views as I get sometimes. Because <laughs> it seems like if you just post anything, you'll get like 100 views. And I've posted a couple where they get three. And I'm like, how? How is that right. even possible? Like you should have watched three. Yeah. No, I, I, I see it as some sort of accomplishment how little people watch my videos. I think all you need to make a good TikTok video is a cat. Like, it seems like that's the key to anything that's, you know, funny or viewable on the Internet. Like, get a cat in there and follow it around for like 36 hours and it'll do something interesting. And then you're a star. That's true. That's a good piece of advice. Um, oh, it's probably horrible. <laughs> well, we don't know each other that well, so I'm just being agreeable. But... <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I tried making one. It was like, uh, I just posted this. It was a, the, the premise was I was pitching a new Christmas movie. And the idea was that, was that Santa's going down the chimney to like give the kids his presents. And at one of the, at one of the houses, there's a dog that's awake and the dog starts growling and then Santa fears for his life. So he shoots the dog, but then the family feels that the dog definitely wasn't vicious. So it's, it's a real, uh, you know, who's right. And, um, it did terribly. <laughs> it's kind of a, kind of a dark twist on Christmas. I, yeah, I, I don't think the TikTok audience appreciated it. TikTok audience probably believes in Santa still. <laughs> that might be where you went wrong. Yeah. You're from Virginia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was born outside of Richmond. Okay. Okay. Is that, I was told that was the gateway to the South. Um, yeah, people say that. Have you been to New York city much? Yes. A little bit. Uh, I never lived there, but I've been there plenty of times. Okay, to me, and maybe this is too local a reference. I don't know, but to me, Richmond is like is like Bushwick, except okay. for the people are in worse shape. It's like a fatter Bushwick. <laughs> okay, and they're and they're a little behind too. Like it seems like they are trying to be hipsters in the way that you'd see in Brooklyn, but they're not quite. It's like a game of telephone, you know, where someone told them what to do, but they missed it like a little. Yeah. So then they ate a bunch of food to make up for it. <laughs> well. You went to George Mason. I know that. I saw. I used to be a reporter. Yeah, I used to be a sports reporter, and I'd I'd go back and look at all these records from what these schools and athletes did. Now I just look on somebody's Facebook page, and I feel like I have everything. Yeah. So I'm a real creep. But I had a buddy uh, named Lunchbox, and he went to Georgetown. So I'm sure you know him. Yeah. Uh, but he told me, you know, we're both from Binghamton or Endicott, New York, really. And he went to George Mason, and he got there, and then just got really deep into guns and NASCAR. At George Mason? I don't think it was at George Mason that he got okay. deep into guns and NASCAR, but he started going to races and he's like, you got to come with me down to Richmond. That's where you got to be. And I was like, I don't think I got to be there. Yeah. You, like I, yeah, you're, you're right. Your instinct was right. <laughs> How was George Mason? Um, Mason, by the way, Richmond's like fine. I, I don't know. I'm sh I, I mean, it's like it's anywhere, a big city. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, it's just like anywhere. I, I was there from when I was zero to like end of high school. So I'm, I'm sure I'm not – I didn't do all the stuff one might do if you were an adult living in Richmond. Right. But Mason was good for me because I just wanted to do comedy. The thing with Mason is it, it used to be a commuter school, and it, it still is to a large extent. So a lot of people – like on the weekends, Mason is dead for how big a school it is. There's no one there. And really – like I was surprised when you said that – when you associated Mason with like racing and stuff because Mason oh, yeah, really yeah. – Mason has no distinct identity at all. It's no one who goes there like cares that they went there. You know, like if you go to Virginia Tech or something and then you meet another alum, you're like, hey, if you go to Mason, right. I've met people who went to Mason and we don't even ask each other what what like years. It just no one cares. I don't. I forget what year it was. It was like 2006 or seven when they made a deep run in the March Madness tournament. That was where I saw a lot of George Mason pride. But I think that happens to every school, you know, at the end of March. Yeah. Yeah, whatever year that was, was uh, the only time we seemed to be good at anything. <laughs> all throughout when I was in school there, they would still talk about that. And that was, whatever, eight eight years before I went there or something. When did you graduate? Maybe not eight years. I, we're, we're on the air, so my math is worth. Um, I graduated in 2017. 
So it was 20, oh, yeah, yeah. 2017. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I was living in Pennsylvania at that point. So I'm going to, that's why I, I guessed 2006, 2007. And I could be a couple of years off on that. But, but yeah, I, I have never heard of anything athletically about that school since. And I mean, I covered sports. So like I, I covered a little bit in the Patriot League. So I'd see them come up, but you know, no athletes came from George Mason. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't even have a football team. Right. Yeah. Which is really weird because Northern Virginia, I mean, it's it's a nice area. It's huge. So you'd think like they could get the money in there. And I mean, because it's not a poor school for sure. No, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the biggest school in Virginia except for Liberty University, I think. Really? I figured like Virginia or Virginia Tech would be bigger. Oh, no, no. We're way bigger. We, we, we were like 30,000 or something because we also had all Holy the commuters. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, it was huge. And yet, I and just, yet, like no one's heard of it. It's crazy. Yeah, I just remember I always had a place to park there. Like there was never, there's never a lack of parking spaces because I would go there. Maybe I think I've been there three times. We went to move somebody out and had a party at one place, and I'm like 24, 25, so I'm still the old guy right. uh, at some of these places. But yeah, I thought it was a fine school. My buddy went there for music. He, it was like music education and performance, and I know the music departments are very good. But that's all I really know about it. I think it's like for the most part a good school. Um, I studied economics, and it's a very uh, their econ department is very coke funded libertarian. <laughs> and I had no idea. I thought that's just what economics was like. And then I got out and talked to other people who studied it, and they're like, "No, we didn't learn it like that." <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you could take from the economics into comedy aside from yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. needing money? I think there's definitely a perspective in economics. That's in like they definitely have an unorthodox way of looking at things that I think you can sometimes apply to stand up. Gosh, what's a good example? Oh, okay. So like I would have this class where they would talk about should there be a market for like your organs? Like should you be able to sell organs? And I think most people just when you hear that would go, Oh my god, that's that's heinous. You know, you would you would end up with poor people essentially selling their organs you know, to wealthy people and that would be bad. And, and, and the, the econ perspective is like, no, that's good, you know, because who is worse off in this? Let's say you are a poor person and you have less money than you would like, but you have more kidneys than you need. You know, you could, it, it seems on the surface bad, but if I was poor and I was, and I was able to sell a kidney in some safe way, then I would be better off. And the rich person who bought it would also be better off. So there's no, there's no loser in this scenario. All I can think is, do you ever see Hostel? I don't think so. Uh, it's a, a movie where, uh, like, I, I forget where it's uh, based out of, but it's in Europe. And they basically, this organization kidnaps different kinds of people, like from Japan and America. Like, you can hunt them. So if you pay, like, $25,000, you can hunt an American. So, like, you can you can basically take them and torture them, do whatever you want. So I think you're talking about something different. But uh, no, no, that's, that's where I'm my saying. mind yeah, went. That's what, that's what we're into. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. What I meant was hunting people. (laughs) Then I'm all on board. You sold me. Yeah. You started comedy at George George Mason, right? I started a little bit before. I my first set was when I was 17. It was like a high school talent show. Good for you. How'd it go? It went great. Really? Okay. Yeah. It was it was the best set I had for about four years. (laughs) Is that good or bad? It was. I mean, it it gave me really weird expectations, and also made me a super cocky little asshole. Yeah, you know, because yeah, I thought I was incredible. And I mean, I I actually still have the set recorded. It did go really good, but I mean, I'm 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 like awful. Right. The jokes are so bad. I have this. I'm just terrible to watch on stage. I speak really, really slowly. I think someone told me that you're going to be nervous and you'll speak quickly. So I was like, oh, I'll show you. And then I spoke just painfully slowly. Have you revisited those jokes and like say, okay, well, maybe it was bad at 17, but now, you know, I've got a half hour special. Maybe I can, I can work on this again. Work on those jokes? Yeah. Oh, no, no. <laughs> they were so <laughs> <That> bad. <laughs> no, they were painfully bad. I just think it's the reason I keep the video, I mean, I guess posterity, but also I just think it's funny how bad I am versus how good I'm doing. It's like absurd. Yeah. What were the jokes about? Like just English class? Well, I mean, I assume it's at a school you can't be dirty. No, I was very – I was really into like Dimitri Martin. So it was really short yeah. one-liners. Let's see. The first thing I said was, if you don't laugh at my jokes, that's fine. But if you could all just make some kind of noise so I don't feel weird. Yeah. And then for some reason, everybody went, yeah, and like got all excited. 
Um, let's see. I had a bit about shit. Did I do this one that day? I had I had a bit about doing this project, a video project with some girl, and she looks at the video and goes, "Oh my god, am I that fat?" And then I was just like, "Yes, of course. You're that's exactly how you're exactly as fat <laughs> as you are. That's a video." Um, gosh. Oh, oh, you know, you know what? Actually, my signature joke was about was about bidets. And it was that if you just if you just shit hard enough, any toilet can be a bidet, you know, because like the, <laughs> the water will get you. That's gold. I'm even but I'm even overperforming it now. Like, OK, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would have had the balls to do that in high school. And I don't know like, why I did. I, I really oh, wasn't yeah. a dare or anything. Kind of. So I had been writing jokes for like months before I, I, I saw comedy and was like, oh, that's incredible. But, you know, I didn't think it was a real thing that people could actually do. I just assumed you were sort of born a famous comedian. I get, I don't really know what I thought, but I just kept writing jokes. And then I had a friend who was just like, you'd, you'd be a huge bitch if you don't do this talent show. I mean, you, you already have the jokes. And if you, if you don't do it, it's just because you're scared. So yeah, I just did it, which was very out of character for me. I was, I'm a very, it was a very timid, meek little fellow. So yeah, even thinking back, I'm like, damn, I don't know why I did that. So, and if I, mean, I hadn't, I probably wouldn't have kept doing stand because it went so well that that gave me the confidence to, you know, bomb for subsequent years. But if, so if I hadn't done that, I don't even know if I would have, you know, m- maybe would have bombed my first set at some shitty open mic and gone, oh, okay, I actually suck at this. Right. When you, I assume you didn't go to an open mic until you graduated, right? No, no, I, um, I went to an open mic maybe two weeks after this in high school. Oh no shit! Yeah, that's great. And I was, and I was like seventeen, so my mom had to come to all the open mics, and the, all the other older grizzled comics would talk about fucking my mom the whole time. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it wasn't like there was this big audience and my mom was among them. It was the comics, me, my mom. <laughs> so you're driving home with the audience member. Yeah. With the one audience member. <laughs> that's uh, That must have been a nice bonding experience on the way home. Yeah. I mean, I kind of felt bad because I would be so nervous that I would run all my jokes with my mom on the way to the mic. So she wouldn't even get to hear the jokes when I – like she'd already heard them by the time we right. got there. Um, so she was completely humoring you. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, she was shockingly, but both my parents have been crazy supportive. Whenever I hear comics talk about how their parents hate they're, they're doing comedy, I don't relate to that at all. <laughs> Mine's been great. Yeah. Like mine, I got started late. I think I was like 32, 33 when I, I was 32 when I started writing. And then I got on stage when I was 33. And both of my parents are musicians. Like they, they are actually getting paid to play music, do art. So I figured, okay, well, I'll tell them I'm doing stand-up. And my dad said, are you going to get paid? I was like, well, maybe eventually. And I didn't have the heart to tell him maybe in drink tickets. But but he just wanted to know there was a future in that. And, I mean, they're fine with it now that I'm, you know, four and a half, five years in. But, like, and doing, you know, like I was able to produce shows and, and pay bills with it. So that's when they were like, cool, go for it. But I think if they could have, like, erase the first three or four years where things weren't clicking they would have gladly done that and like just start making your rent and we'll be fine with you whatever you pursue yeah how did you feel about is it like stressful starting late um it's stressful only in the fact that um because you know i started 17 years after you started and uh it's stressful only in the fact that i feel like i can't miss an open mic or I'll fall behind or people are so far ahead of me. Like when I hear you say, Oh, I started at 17. I get really jealous because I think maybe if I started at 17, I wouldn't be in Endicott, New York, you know, like I, I'd be in New York city or, or I'd be hanging out on Patton Oswalt's couch, you know, something like that. You know, I'd still be destitute and need to stay on somebody's couch, but at least it would be Patton Oswalt's (laughs) couch. So I think the only pressure I I feel is put on myself because, hey, you know, this is a third act for me. You know, it's like now I've got to do this or I have to get a real job, essentially. Hmm. I thought I I always thought one advantage, though, about people who starting later is that you actually have something to like talk about for the first. I mean, I had nothing to say for I mean, maybe I still don't, but like I definitely didn't you know, for the first couple of years, it was these cute, I used to do sex jokes. Like before I'd had sex, I was just like, well, me too, but I was 33. <laughs> no, <Okay. laughs> that's not true. I just thought everybody listens like, yeah, I, I know we, we've heard this podcast before. We, we know you haven't had sex. You never will. <laughs> right. So what was that like? Just making assumptions on everything? No, no. I mean, it was just, I knew what sex was as a concept. So I would just make fun of the yeah. concept of sex. You know, right. it'd be like, given that sex requires this, this, and this, how about this punchline? Yeah. Right. Be like that. Was that weird to do in front of your mom? 
it should have been, but I never really, I didn't really realize that people listening to stand up think that you are that you are telling the truth about your life or your experiences. For me, I always thought of jokes as so as such a separate thing. Like when I when I wrote a joke, I thought people just heard the joke construction because that's right. like what I heard. I was just like, here's a joke. You know, given sex is the premise, here is my punchline, and I thought that's what people listened. And then it took me a weirdly long time to realize that people. When I make some joke about eating somebody out, they think that I do that, <laughs> which of course I never do. Ugh. Of course. Well, you don't, want, you don't want cancer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it was, it was Michael Douglas who said, you know, he, he wouldn't eat out Catherine Zeta-Jones because he was going to get cancer. And I'm like, wow, if you're going to get cancer, you know. Right. May as well get it that way. <laughs> yeah, really. No, I, I asked that because I remember when I'm 17, 18 and my mom's in the car, you know, I'm listening to uh, Dude Ranch by Blink-182. And like there's a song called Waggy where part of the uh, chorus is I'll just jack off in my room until then. And I remember coughing during it and turning down the music. What'd you say, mom? And like, I just didn't want her to hear that. So at 17, 18, I can't imagine talking about that with my parents. Yeah. I mean, one, I think my parents and I, I, I'm comfortable talking about that stuff. I think partly I used to think it was funny to shock them. And now they're not even shocked by it because I've done it. So they don't care. But again, I didn't think of it like when I said jokes about that, I didn't think of it as talking about that. I was just like, no, this is a joke. It's completely in a vacuum. And it's not about anything. It's just like, you know, it's just a joke. It's yeah. Right. That's, that's how I looked at it. So when did you move to New York? Was that right out of college? So I did comedy in college. And then I stayed in D.C. for one year after I graduated. I came to New York in 20, 2018 to 2019. Like, August of 2018, I think. You, you have a job there, or were you just trying to get better at comedy before you went went to New York? Um, I had a job in Northern Virginia, and things were going good in D.C. The 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 um, comedy scene in D.C. is well was incredibly good. Yeah, I mean, you could get you know when when like you were new, you would get up I don't know nine ten times a week in front of crowds no that were thirty people plus. Like even the open mics had thirty to like seventy real audience members. That's crazy. It was I before I moved to New York, I didn't I didn't know there was a difference between open mic and show. Like I just right. use those things interchangeably. And what what people in New York call an open mic where there's no audience, it's just comics. I'd never even heard of that. I mean, I did it once or twice in Richmond, but I just assumed that the Richmond comedy scene was bad and that's why it was like that, but that a normal open mic should have 50 audience members. Yeah, I mean, it's a pandemic, but the last open mic I had inside, we had five people, four comedians, one guy who drove one of the comedians. Nice. So that's and you know obviously times are times are tough, but that's not. I mean, we probably get more comedians, but you know it's pretty even between comedians and audience members. So we're not like nobody's knocking down the door to get into an open mic. Right. Yeah. So yeah, moving to New York was a very. I mean, it was, it was just shocking. I, I I'd never really done true depressing open mics before. <laughs> nah, how do you like them? They're. I think they have a specific niche use. I think like for, for, for the first year when I was in New York, I, I wasn't getting booked at all. So I just did open mics and I wrote a lot, but I think I actually got worse at being a performer. Like I would go back to DC and do the improv and stuff. And I would like bomb because I got so used to just being in front of these just freaks, you know, and <laughs> making them laugh. And then I got back to normal non-comics. And I'm like, what are you saying? Why are you so sad? You know? <laughs> I did. I think I was four or five months in and, you know, I'm in Binghamton and I, I, I'm doing pretty well. At least I think I am. I'm I'm at least delusional enough to think so. And I go to New York for and do a couple mics. And one the first one, I think, was at the New York Comedy Club. And I'm standing on the lights and I had never been under real lights before. So the first you've been there, right? Yeah. OK, so the first thing I see is just blinding light. And I can't see anything in front of me. And I'm like, oh, shit, I can't see anybody. So I don't know where I'm looking. Like, I could be telling a joke to a chair. To know, and I would yeah. have no idea. And yeah. But I wasn't prepared for all the comedians to be there, like just comedians. And they would leave as soon as they were done performing. Yep. That's the thing that got me. So, you know, I'm like, I'm going to say I was like 14th out of 16 on the list. And by the time I got there, there was the host my friend, and maybe three or four other people. So when I'm telling jokes to empty chairs, I really could have been looking right at an empty chair. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, that was frustrating. And then I did two or three mics that weekend and I got used to people bailing right away. 
And I understood it because I, I would see them at the next mic. And I'm like, oh, I get it now. They're not leaving because they don't like me. They're leaving because they have shit to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sucks, but I do the, exactly the same thing. Yeah. The thing that was hard for me at the open mics was I just felt so much more judged because now it's all my peers. Right. You know, and if you're if you're in front of a crowd, you can kind of get away with a little bit. Like if you if you have some joke that doesn't work and then you do some hacky like saver thing, that'll like work. But at a mic, if you do that, it's like not only you did you bomb, then you try to get out of it with some cute line and everyone's like, ugh. Yeah. Well, and like comedians are horrible audience members anyway. Yeah. And then it's like it almost feels like it's an audition every time you're on stage. Like like who's in the audience? Who's going to who's going to hate me? Yeah. And realize that I am a fraud and should move back to Richmond or Binghamton. Like, yeah, that, like that's I, the thing. That's was, the pressure that gets me. Yeah. And there was it's an audition, but there's nothing there's nothing to win in the audition. You can only lose. You know, it's like an audition. <laughs> it's an audition to be hated, but but like not to be loved. You know, even if you have a good set, right. no one's going to care. But if you do something ridiculous, they go, oh, fuck that guy. I got to imagine that's part of the benefit of producing things at your house where it's like like they're you're, you're obviously funny. But if if they're rude to you, oh no problem. If they're rude to you, then they can leave. Like you can just have and then get out of here. Like it has to take like a little bit of the pressure off. Yeah, like they're not going to be an asshole to you. No, no, no. The audiences not. have been really. I mean, these aren't like mics. I you know, it's their shows with right. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. No, I found the audiences are great. I mean, people who right now are willing to go to a comedy show in forty degree weather in some guy's backyard are usually up for stuff. <laughs> Did you just start producing those shows at your house during the pandemic season? Pandemic season sounds awful. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like it's like oh, we're going to get one of these a year, which might happen. Yeah, uh, so, was there any pushback to you doing that from anybody else? No, I think that I'm a. When people meet me, I think I come off as a cold, difficult person to talk to. So people, even if they do have a problem, don't seem to want to tell me. So. <laughs> No, but I produce – so I do one show at my apartment and then two shows at this ice cream place that also has an outside roof terrace thing. And then I used to do another one at a CBD store. So okay. – and it sounds weird to say, but in terms of minutes on stage, I have been performing more in the pandemic than I ever have. That's crazy, man. Because I would just book myself for like 30 minutes to, to like prepare for the special. So I was doing I was doing 30 minutes four or five times a week, you know? I mean – and obviously, you know, you're booking it. So people can't be like, oh, no, get off my stage. It's not your yeah. stage. Yeah, yeah. I'll go up. And I mean, now, like after the special, I, I dropped all my material. So I host and I just I bomb so bad. <laughs> but I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's my show. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Before everything locked down, over, I was producing. I had 14 rooms and all across New York rooms, 14. So Damn. I would do about 12 monthly shows. And then I would get, you know, every three or four months at a lodge or something like that. So I'd add it in there. And I hosted just about every one of those shows. So, which, you know, is a drag, but again, it's my show. Yeah, it's my show. I put the post together. Who's yeah. going to tell me I can't perform on it? Exactly. So, and what I would do is I, you know, if I'm hosting a monthly show, I would bring a different 15 minutes or 10 minutes, whatever it was, to that venue. So, okay, they haven't seen this and it forced me to write. It forced me to work mm -hmm. a little harder because, you know, we have some regulars. So, you know, they might not want to see me at all. So yeah. at least at least I'm going to bring something they haven't seen before. Right. But is there what kind of benefit do you have? Or can you find from producing and hosting these shows or or, you know, headlining or whatever? I mean, what's the big benefit for you? I've been thinking about this a lot lately. It seems like the hardest part about comedy is not like if, if, if you actually broke down what or like how most comics spend their time. It is waiting to or trying to get stage time, but it's not doing yeah. comedy. So if you just broke down, all right, how many hours does it take to do everything required to produce a show and then compare that against how much stage time you get from that show and the quality of stage time, producing your own stuff makes way more sense than going to open mics or just hanging out at some random show where you don't know anybody. Unless you're, you know, unless you have a bunch of credits and you can just get booked on whatever you want, but I'm not there. So to me, I could either go like especially during the pandemic when there's like five shows that exist and everyone wants a spot on them you know i could go sit there and try to be friends with those people and then hope that they book me in two months maybe for one spot or just you know spend because I, I like my day job is from home so i look at it like i can just keep producing shows you know infinitely it takes i don't know five six hours a week to book it and promote it 
and then for that for those five six hours i get like an hour and a half of stage time i mean that yeah you just can't beat that ratio especially at an open mic where it takes let's say a typical open mic it's like an hour to get there you sit at the open mic for an hour hour and a half and then an hour to get home and you got three bad minutes out of that yep it just it just doesn't make sense and then you, you know you've got to buy minimums or whatever yeah. um yeah and you end up paying so, money for that anyway yeah i know the the open mics i did in the city now we don't have the same open mics up here, obviously, but a couple of them I had to do, uh, or I had to pay. You know, you got to pay three, five dollars, sure. or spend seven dollars on mozzarella sticks or a couple drinks. So you factor transportation in with that too. Exactly. So it's a, you know, it seems like nothing at the time, but like you, you add it up. That's a serious investment. Yeah, and if instead of that you put that money towards just a little bit of marketing for, and the way I look, I mean, if I get a show, if I run a show that gets eight audience members. I mean, that wouldn't be a good show, but it'd be way better than an open mic. Right. So that's how I look at it. And especially if they're paying, because it's such a psychological thing. Mm-hmm. I know, like, if I do a free show and, you know, sometimes the bars will give us money and we'll do a free show. It's usually pretty good, but you can tell the difference between the audience members who don't pay and the audience members who pay $10 to see the show. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's like they walk through that door and they know they are actually invested in this show. They flip a switch saying, oh, we want to be here. We want to be supportive. We want to be part of this. Whereas if it's a free show, dude just wants to watch a Titans game on Thursday night. Right. And it's like, I don't know anybody who'd want to watch a Titans game anytime, but here you are. So, and especially I think like, like during the pandemic, and like you said, like if they're willing to come out and support comedy at that point, shit, man, they want to laugh. They want to be there. Yeah. Really badly. Yeah. I assume you, your girlfriend lives with you, Samantha. Yep. Mm-hmm. Did you guys produce shows together before the pandemic? Yeah, where our our first show was at Ample Hills, which is this ice cream place, and we used to do it inside there, and that was that was a very fun show. It was every week, and we would get like 50, 60 people out, and then we moved to this apartment because it had the backyard, which she was excited about, and then I really wanted to start a show, and she was like, "That's a terrible idea. I don't want to do that." Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then she went out of town one weekend. <laughs> I was just like, "I'm just going to do the show," and so I'm doing it, and then I did it when she was gone, and it went really well. And so, and I sent her pictures and stuff. And so she goes, all right, that looks kind of fun. And now the apartment show is her favorite show. It kind of feels like we're um, like just hosting parties almost. Yeah. Like you ever, I, I can't think of an example, but those like stories with old, like old people from the South will talk about how their parents used to host these big like dinner gala thingies where like all the neighbors, were. it feels kind of like that, but also there's a show happening. It's, right. Like it's, it's like our one time to socialize during the week. It's so it's, it's fun. Well, I think like what what I like so much about your special, uh, it's uh, Giraffe in the Shed, right? What I liked about it, it and it's uh, obviously the, the comedy is funny. I mean, it's it's all there. It's it's great special. But I watched it from like the producer in me. And what you guys did to transform your patio into a comedy club was amazing. I mean, it really looked impressive. And if you didn't show the the buildup, like the minute montage it took to set that up, I would have thought you were in the back of a restaurant. You know, it was legitimately beautiful how you guys set that up. So I was really, really jealous of that. Yeah, we we like it a lot. The only thing I guess you, you wouldn't really know this from the from the video, but the um, we got like the cheapest turf that you could get. And uh, our dog pees on it all the time. So when it rains... It smells so bad. And it had rained that night. So the whole time I was up on stage, I was just like, God, it smells like shit. <laughs> did anybody point that out? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the camera guys did before we started. He was just like, huh. So it smells like shit out here. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> did you pay the camera guys to be there to yeah. endure the yeah, smell? Yeah. Oh, good. Yep. Then fuck them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Why is he even met? You work for me. You smell that shit. <laughs> you are the help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the help doesn't talk, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, was that half hour material? Was that how much of that was made during the pandemic, written during the pandemic? Most of it was not. Maybe okay. 10% of it was new from when okay. I was in comedy after coming back from the pandemic. That's, uh, and that's, that material is gone, right? I dropped off it. Yeah. And it feels weird because the, um, I mean, like most of it I'm happy to be done with. Some of it was getting embarrassingly old, but there was a couple jokes that one about um, role playing during sex. How you, yeah. Um, and the like skiing, that one was brand new. I did that joke like three times and I just thought it would go good. So, but like on principle, I'm not doing it again. <laughs> I've only done it. Wow. I, I literally did it like three or four times. Is that, uh, are you going to miss that one? Yeah, I think it's funny, but. No, I mean, I, mean, I just mean like, uh, like I've got, I've got a joke I'm working on now where you're like, I, so I do, 
a comedy show every two weeks and I record it and I'm not dropping the material, but we get regular audience members. So like, I, I'm not going to do the same joke twice. You know, it's kind of a challenge to me. And there's a joke I held out from last week's or last night's show because I want to do it later. And I'm like, I don't want to say goodbye yet. Right. Like, this, I can't imagine like, like having a joke for three weeks and be like, nope, especially if it worked. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I mean, if, I'm, I'm sure you've heard all the, all those Louie interviews about doing that and how it made him like, that's what made him good. Yeah. So my thinking is, all right, he started doing that when he was, I don't even 30 something. So what if I start, what if I try to do that starting at 25? Like what, how, how good could I get? Right. And so far I have, I mean, I've only bombed since, so I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just bomb until I give up and use my material again, but I'm trying it. What did you learn most from doing that special? I mean, was it, was it just about, uh, the production side or the fact that you can actually draw an audience into your house. What'd you have fun doing the most? Yeah. Drawing an audience into my house. Now I know if I want to start, if I want to start being like a murderer, you know, I could just do it. <laughs> I just put up a flyer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, I think the thing I learned was I had never really written jokes to be a part of a larger act. You know, I would just kind of write something completely in ice in like in a vacuum and then if I had to do a 10-minute set, I would say 10 random jokes in a vacuum and kind of try to have a transition, but I didn't work that hard. And now after putting this together, the way I look at writing now is like these are all pieces of a larger thing. Right. So like as I'm writing this new stuff, I'm more cognizant of that I, I want this to fit together in like an hour and not just be these little discreet, here's the joke, here's the joke, here's the joke. It's called Garage in the Shed. And obviously, uh, you and I know there's a garage in the shed. Giraffe in the uh, shed. Garage in the shed, yeah, that that doesn't sound right. Yeah, good for you. Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, is that was that kind of like a like a Dimitri Martin esque thing? It's like some absurd, you know. We put a giraffe here, and there's really no place for it. Uh, so here, now it's the name of the, the special. Um, yeah, I mean, I just yeah, you just need a name. So I was I was just looking around at the setup, and I was like, oh, that's peculiar. It, I was it'll gonna, draw people in there. Yeah, my my original idea was I was going to have the montage of us setting up the backyard going. And then I found this I found this interview where Cuomo was talking about how comedy was non-essential. And I was going to have that playing as kind of like a fuck you. But then all the numbers started getting worse and people started dying again. So I was like, ah, oh, that might not age super well. <laughs> so I will, <laughs> I will not make it that. Did you get any pushback from the comedians? About, to say, hey, man, you, you shouldn't be doing this. Like, uh, I mean, obviously, everything everybody's in the in a mask and social distance and everything. But with comedians pretty much on board. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I haven't gotten any pushback, really. I mean, I've had like one or two people say, like, I'll, I'll try to book them and they just don't want to do a show because they're not willing to risk it. But they've never it, it doesn't feel like they've judged me for it. They just go, I'm just not comfortable for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed even up here, like our numbers are getting, you know, everywhere is getting higher. But for the most part, we've been okay. And comedians just, uh, I think for the most part, they just don't want to do comedy right now. And which is fine. But I'm wondering how many of them are coming back because very few people in Binghamton, New York are basing their, you know, financial lives on comedy. Right. So I think they're kind of weighing like, well, if shows aren't happening right now, what's the point of writing? What's the point of doing anything? And, you know, we, we have an indoor mic and that's really it right now. So it, it, it gets tough. But I'm guessing that in New York, when you have a rooftop on just about every building, you know, I would think every building that there's that there's somewhere to, to perform. You, you got a park show or something like that. So yeah. do you get flooded with people saying, hey, you know, book me and, and I'm available. I'll do the show. Yes. Less so before, because there, as you said, there used to be a ton of park shows and stuff. But now that it's getting colder, a lot of people are stopping. But I have a heater, so I am not stopping. Right. And so now like like at the show yesterday, I had a comic ask if they could come hang out, which is a little weird because it's just my apartment. So I'm like, yeah, I guess. And they came with like nine other comics. They're like, is it cool if all nine of us hang out? I'm like, no, it's not cool. <laughs> Get Wait, out. Just to hang, just to hang out at the show, or in your house after the show? In my house during the show, because there's oh not God. enough, there's not enough room in the back because there's the audience in the show. So they're like, is it cool if all nine of us just sit in your apartment? I was like, of course it's not. I mean, are you great? Like, get out. I mean, it's a New York apartment. It's like 600 square feet. Like, where would you all even be in the apartment? Right. You have to like, like be in the bedroom. Yeah, and two people are gonna have to wait outside anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> go wait with your friends. Like, yeah, exactly. That's been a little weird having people asking to hang out at the show. And it's like, yeah, 
you know, it's where I live and stuff. I do, uh, depending on how everything falls, but I'm a big Seinfeld fan. I do a Festivus party every December 23rd. So I'll typically invite a few people. I don't know what I'm doing this year, but I'll invite a few people. And last year, our open mic schedule, it fell on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. So we, uh, or something like that, the bar was closed. So I was like, uh, let's just do the open mic at my house. At that point, I'm like, well, do I really want to invite every comedian in the area to not only know where I live, but also come inside and hang out? Right. And I was like, well, I can't make it closed. I mean, people are going to find out and I don't want to exclude anybody. So I guess and it went well. But like, I really was thankful that we never got more than five or six people. I'm like, okay, like, like I wanted more people to go. But once I saw people walk in, I'm like, you know what? Oh, I hope this guy doesn't show up. Yeah, it's yeah. I've I've had a couple times at my show where a comic who didn't ask if they could hang out is just sitting in my living room. And they just say like, hey, what's up? As though we're just at a bar. And it's like, who said you could? I mean, I don't It's fine. But it's like, who said you could come in here? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It wasn't like the door was open and there was a big sign. Like it's just you walked in through several doors to get into my private domicile. Yeah, it's like get out of the cupboard, idiot. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> what about your neighbors? Are they cool with it? They are shockingly cool with it. They will actually sit out on their little patios and watch. And they, they, they've even offered to pay for tickets. And I'm just like, just the fact that you aren't like reporting us is more than it's- enough payment. The only time we had a problem, our immediate neighbors like that have a yard on the other side of our fence. One time during the show, we're having a party and they played like salsa music through the entire show. Oh, no. And it's like, I can't even really tell them to turn it off. I mean, what they're doing is way less ridiculous than what I'm trying to do. Right. You know, I mean, it's their backyard. So we just, you know, performed to salsa music the whole time. (laughs) I wonder if that makes you a better comedian. Like just going through that. Ah, Maybe. I mean, I think it it teaches you how to not, you just have to stand there and take it. There, There was no, I mean... You know, I would try to incorporate it into my set. But like, what is everyone going to do that? You know, like I was the host and there was like seven comics. So eventually people are going to get tired of being like, boy, isn't this salsa music irritating? They're like, yes, you know, just so you kind of had to just plow through. I know uh, when we do bar shows on especially Thursday nights, they're they're fun. But you've got Thursday night football. And I was at an open mic one time where because and this is why I'll never do the show. But I was at an open mic one time and this guy went over his comedian and he turned off Thursday night football at a bar. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to get stabbed. Yeah. Like, like this guy came from work. He's by himself watching the game with like an empty in front of him and a full one. It's like he is here to watch football or murder somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so now you just made his, his choice very easy. Yeah. And uh, so I I have like extreme anxiety about turning the TVs off at a bar. I don't know if I could say, hey, can you turn down your salsa music and end your good time so I can have my good time? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, nobody owes me, you know, like they're att- like in that case, the one, the one you're talking about, it sounds like it was probably an ambush mic, right? Like the people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean. If I do an ambush show and people are like talking through it, I mean, I'll sort of make fun of them, but I, I, I never get upset. It's like, you guys don't owe me your attention. I mean, I'm intruding on what you were doing with that. I have a microphone. It makes me irritated when I've got a comedian at a mic and he's he's verbally assaulting somebody who's really just eating dinner and yeah. trying to talk to his girlfriend. It's like he's not here for this. Like we're we're on their time. So exactly. let's not make him never come back to the restaurant again because, yeah. you know, we kind of want to be here. Yeah. My worst, I had, I was booked on a show that was billed as like a, it was like a weed show. And this guy's yeah. like, oh, I'll, you know, you'll, you'll get paid. There's going to be like 200 people in the audience. It'll be great. And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. And it, what it ended up being was a weed market place where everybody's selling weed and CBD products all had these booths and then people could go around and buy stuff. So it wasn't, then they just had the comedian stand in a corner behind like a velvet, one of those like rope things at a bar. And nobody was looking at us. No, it was, you know, people were talking at full volume, just trying to buy stuff. And at one point, a guy walked right in front of me and I was into the microphone. I was just like, hey, do you know why I have a microphone right now? And the guy just flipped me off and kept walking. (laughs) (laughs) What'd you do right then? I just laughed. I mean, nobody was paying attention to me anyway. It's like there was no pressure to even tell jokes. You could stand there for a minute and then get into the next joke and nobody would have cared. But I remember after the show, one of the weed guys had been listening 
And I just went up and talked to him for a minute. And he goes, hey, you were funny. And I was like, thanks. And then he goes, actually, you were all right. (laughs) (laughs) Like right away, he downgraded you. Immediately, he was like, oh, did I say funny? I meant, you know, you were a comedian. (laughs) (laughs) Was that the worst show you've ever had? No. I mean, that was one of the hardest, but I got paid. And that, that one was one of those that was so ridiculous. I thought it was fun. I think the worst ones are, are just when when things are set up to go well and then you just bomb anyway. Because then I have I don't even have a funny story. It's just at the end I'm like, huh, I guess I suck. <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> can you think of your worst set? My worst set. I mean, I have the I can think of the one that like hurt the most. Go but for it, it. I was hosting at the Improv and I just it was it was it was after I'd done open mics in New York for like forever, so I was weird and I hosted and the first show went just terribly. And then the other comics on the show did great, which I found I was very offended by. It's like, if yes, I bomb, I we that. all bomb. Oh, my God. I, I feel like an asshole saying that out loud. But if I if I have a horrible set, I want everybody to suck, too. Oh, totally. And like, like if I'm producing the show, I think a little bit differently. But in the back of my head, I'm like, fuck you guys, too. Like, Oh, I don't. When I produce. We all suck tonight. Yeah, exactly. It's a team thing. I will. This sounds terrible, but I have, <laughs> honestly will do this. I will book someone, and then if they see me bomb on my show, I will not book them again. Really? Oh, totally. Yeah, it doesn't matter how they do. They should have, if they wanted to get booked, they should have um, watched me do better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I don't want to. I don't want to perform in, some, in front of someone who thinks I suck. Right. So yeah, they're <laughs> too bad for them. <laughs> so how did that show go? I mean, just oh, the improv just, show. Yeah. Oh, so anyway, yeah, I bombed the first one, and it's it's um two shows and i'm talking to a friend in the back about uh just why it didn't go well and i'm just being needy and like well but did you think this was fine and i really worked myself up i was like you know what for the second show i'm gonna really kill it i'm gonna just bring it whatever so i go for the second show and i bombed so much worse than the first show i didn't it was and like after the so after, after the first show my friend was you know trying to give me outs he was like no it was just the crowd was weird and they weren't red after the second show i go back and he's just like i don't know man you just suck <laughs> like i don't tell you <laughs> like no pat on the back nothing yeah he was like i mean you know you had two chances the first one i thought maybe was a fluke but nope <laughs> you suck did you try different material the second show a little bit but yeah i tried to do what i felt was the safest most surefire like oh they're gonna love this and uh, they did not I wonder if uh, at some point you can just say they know I'm from New York now and D.C. doesn't like me because of that. Like there's a prejudice or no, maybe not. Other maybe, maybe you just on the lineup were from New York, too. There was. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty much pretty much every single possible angle I could go. Well, this was why I bombed. There was some other comic who also had that issue that I couldn't use that as an excuse. You know? Right. It was just the only factor that was left was like was me you know everything else had been controlled for yeah it's it's always funny to hear comedians uh like right after they bomb like blame the audience or whatever and it's like oh you know they would and sometimes the audience sucks like they just do but most times they're okay and uh i had a a buddy just he's like yeah man uh these rooms are always tough and i'm like three guys after you were pretty good (laughs) like (laughs) like i want to be your friend right now but i also don't want to lie to you too so Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Try, try oh. harder next time. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I have another embarrassing one. I um, this was a it was some show in D.C. At, at a place called the Big Hunt, which is awesome. Like really good audiences every night. One of the I think it's my favorite place to do comedy ever. But anyway, I was talking to this comic who was about as about as experienced in comedy as I was. I was just being a douche, just like giving him a whole bunch of advice out of nowhere for some reason. Like I was just being annoying that night. And so I gave him a whole bunch of advice and he goes, all right, I'll watch you and, you know, see how that works. And then I immediately went on and bombed so bad after just being like, all right, here's here's how it's done. Yep. Yeah. Probably my worst set I've ever had, uh, at least my worst experience. And it wasn't a show I produced, but but I was up in a green room and I heard the host of the show, who I think is a horrible comedian. Like just one of those hacks who uh, he produces. I mean, he's me basically. Uh, but <laughs> like, like uh, what he does is he he asks a lot of questions. So like, if a joke doesn't work, he follows it up with like, "You guys happy to be here tonight?" And like, yeah. he'll get applause that way. And you're like, "All right, clap if you like this." And, and I'm like, "All right." So he told a couple jokes, and they went over okay. So I remember telling a friend of mine who was up there in the green room with me, "I'm like, oh, if he's getting this, I'll be fine." 
Oh God, it was awful. (laughs) Well, they're like, questions. So I fucked up because I went down to the stairs to see, you know, him finish up. I was going first and I was just doing a guest spot, did like 10 or so. Mm. And here's how he ended his set. He was doing a little crowd work. He asked two people, a man and a woman. And, you know, what do you do for work or whatever? He's like, oh, well, I work for my dad who's right here. And she works for my dad too. And he said, so do you guys ever get caught fucking at work? And I was like, all I could think was, what kind of person are you to ask a question like that here? Uh, And then after that, he yelled at the table and back to stop talking. And then he bailed on a joke that wasn't working. And he said, all right, you're first comedian. And I was like, oh, no. So my jokes didn't work. I'm sure it was my fault. But the table wasn't set well at all. Right. So... One of the first things I said were, uh, I think I asked the question. I'm like, oh, you're probably tired of a pop quiz or something like that. And I was like, that probably didn't go well either. So it just, you know, I think a few things went all right. And then the end, you know, I had a joke that really hit hard. But I was like, no, this this was not for me. Yeah. So I was like, and I knew, like, I was set myself up to fail because I'm like, oh, I got this. Don't worry about this. I was like, oh, no. So I try to go into everything, every set with confidence, but completely measured. Yeah, do you I find that if I go into a set thinking about how it's going to go, even confidently, even if I'm like, "Oh, I'm going to crush it." I do worse than if I don't then like at at my best, I just go up to a set like I'm just going to have fun. Yeah. Is that how you feel? Yeah, I think so because I for some reason I have so, I know I know why, but I have so much self-doubt that like it, it's hard for me to say, "Oh, I've got this. I'm going to take this." And and like I was a journalist and as a writer, I felt like that. Because I had done it for 10 years or so. And, you know, you could see, you know, the improvement in your writing or whatever. And obviously you see improvement in comedy. But when you're writing a a news story, a sports story, you don't get people like you can't see them like audibly groan at your writing. But like if you tell a joke, I mean, it could go like in that set. I had a a headline set in Ithaca the week before using that material and it went really well. So a week later in Scranton, I use that material and it dies. And it's like, that's why I have doubt in my material, or not my material really, but myself in total, because I never really know how it's going to go because it's a completely new audience. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same. That's why I just go, well, all I can control is whether or not I have fun and seem to be having fun. So, yeah. And I think there's something too, even if you bomb, but you look unfazed by it and you look like you're still enjoying yourself. It kind of tricks the audience. They're like, I don't know, maybe this is okay. Do you know a guy named Patrick Holbert? I don't think so. Okay, he's in New York City. I'm, I'm sure there are only like 17 comedians in the city. Yeah. So but he, he was doing a show up in Binghamton, and I'll, I got to get him on the podcast because I've mentioned him like every other podcast. But, you know, I hosted a show, and I thought it went well. And the reason I don't think it did is because Patrick came over to me after the show, and he goes, you know what I like about you? And I was like, what? He goes, even if things aren't going great, you've got a nice face and they root for you. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I was like, I really thought it was good. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> so like, I think, I think if you have fun up there and it helps to be conversational and like not a robot, like you're memorizing words. But yeah, I think, I think if you're having fun, I think they want to. They want to be on your side for the most yeah, part. Yeah, exactly. I had a similar thing. It was it was actually at the improv I was hosting again. It wasn't the time I did horribly. But yeah, I got off stage and felt like I did good. And that particular weekend, Ari Shafir was headlining in the main room. I was in the side room. And he had just popped into the side room because I guess he wasn't going on yet and watched most of my set. And I saw him watching it. And I got off stage. It was like him. And the next him was my girlfriend. They were just standing in the back. So I got off stage. He leaves. And I go to my girlfriend. I was like, oh, my God, that was Ari Shafir. He saw my set. And she was like, yeah, I know. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what? No, I thought. (laughs) Yeah. Did he comment on it? No. um, We ended up talking later. Just not about. I I felt like it would be annoying to like ask him, you know, how he thought I was at comedy. So we just talked about other stuff. He was very nice, though. He's he's a very nice person. You've been to the city, what, a few years? Uh, This is year number three. Okay. So is it... Is it normal for you to run into anybody you you've seen on TV? I mean, is that is it strange yet? It seems like other people just act as if it's normal. I still like to gawk and go. <gasps> okay, you know, um, yeah, uh, I, I haven't done. I mean, yeah, you you, you see people around. I, I'm not a very I'm not a particularly social person, and especially. And by the way, I try. It's not because I don't like people. I'm just bad at it. But um, <laughs> no, like right now, I just book my own stuff, so I'm not really running into people. 
that I okay. wasn't expecting to run into, especially successful people. They don't just pop in at my apartment, I've, I have found. <laughs> well, that's because you won't let them bring nine people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I won't let their posses come in. You know, what if in that group of nine people was like Nick Kroll and, and Jim Gaffigan? You don't <sighs> know. Uh, yeah, I wasn't paying attention. I should have asked, are, are any of you guys a Nick Kroll or a Jim Gaffigan? If you <laughs> yeah, are, you got to be very specific. Yeah. If you are one of those two, you can stay. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, I looked at your website and I know uh, I know two of the people you've got on your lineup, I think, Saturday show. It's uh, Kalen Palufo and Brett Raybould. Yeah, Brett ended up canceling. What a dick. I know. He said he was feeling sick. It's like, so? We're all feeling sick. It's a pandemic. Let's do it, baby. <laughs> I had him on, on a couple weeks ago. He came out to Binghamton a, a bunch of times, uh, maybe two years ago. He's a great dude. Caitlin's hilarious. I felt kind of bad because she went first on the lineup last night, and I was hosting and with all my new stuff. So it's just like, you know, good luck. Sorry. How'd you do? She did great. I mean, even even my bombing, what there was such a fun into it crowd that it was kind of like they were in sort of into the idea of just being like me, me testing jokes on them. Yeah. You know, e- even when a joke didn't hit, that was kind of fun. They were like, oh, that one sucked. Like it, it wasn't like they weren't like, what the hell are you doing? Be a professional. I, th- I think I think being in a backyard, the it's like, OK, that it was loose. Yeah. But I was very loose. I had a notebook and I was like, I was like, have it in front of my face. Like, okay, what about this joke? And then I'd say it and then go, no. And I'd go, okay, back to the notebook. As unprofessional as you could get. I saw Berbiglia a couple years ago work on his material and he had that. I mean, he didn't, he didn't lift it up in front of his face, but you know, he had a complete notebook and he said, hey, do you like this punchline or this punchline? So you're not that far off from Berbiglia. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, but see, I like to put the notebook in front of my face so they can't see how how sad I am that it's not working. <laughs> oh, okay. Put it up work? and go, oh, no. And then I do the next one. <laughs> That's the secret. Yeah. How do you like hosting? I don't like it, but I think it is useful. I think it makes you better at being in front of crowds. And it's just harder. I mean, you have a not warm audience that you have to make laugh. Yeah. I used to be so bad at it. I was really nervous to do any crowd work. And I was, and even when I did do crowd work, it never went well. My favorite example I would tell people is... um. I was at a show doing crowd work and there was a – I asked this woman what her job was and she said that she runs a summer camp for kids. Uh, it's a week long and the kids come in and we give them an instrument and we teach them the instrument over the week. And then at the end, they do a performance as like a band, right? And so my little quip was I was like, oh, so they're like a bad band. And it got no laugh and then a beat went by and then the woman just goes, hey, that's that's like really mean. And then I bombed <laughs> for the rest. I was so unlikable for the rest of it. But you're right. I can't imagine they sounded great. I mean, no. After a week and their kids. Right. I mean, like you and I could form a band and we could play in a week and it would be awful because we've never played these instruments before. Yeah. I, yeah. She didn't like, I guess no one's told her that. I, I, I don't know. But she uh, tanked the rest of my set. I was a bad comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever run into her again? I don't think so. No. I mean, it was just some audience. I, I have no idea. And it's not like she came up and said something to me afterwards. Okay. I think like, she saw how bad my set went and was like, all right, he got he got what he deserved from yeah, – <laughs> he's, he's been appropriately punished. Maybe he wants to be in the band. So yeah, right. Anything else. Recruit. Yeah. Oh, man. No, I'm, I think I'm okay at crowd work, but I – it's not a weapon – in my arsenal, like, yeah, me like I'm like, okay, like, like I can use it at times. And like my best crowd work is ad-libbing something somebody said during my set. Like, I'm like, hey, you know, I don't ever try to make conversation. I just deal with it when it happens to me. I'm exactly the same way. I'm pretty good. If someone interrupts me to talk, I can make fun of them in a fun way. But I think it's because they have interrupted me. So I feel that that gives me permission to just be mean to them or, you know, right. be really tired or what, whatever. But I feel a little bit weirder about being like, hey, what do you do? And then they tell me, and I'm like, <laughs> stupid, you fucking, like, you know, I, like I started a <laughs> conversation with them. So I'm just a bit like being a bully. I would just think like, if I said, oh, what do you do for a living? And he says, oh, you know, I'm a garbage man or whatever. I'd start to make fun of him. Like, oh yeah, he's a government employee and has benefits and a good pension and insurance. How am I going to make fun of that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like your I life have- is way better than I at mine. Right. I had one, this was a little earlier on, I was talking to, I asked somebody what they did and they said they were an anesthesiologist. And I just said the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, hey, don't a bunch of people die from that? And she goes, <laughs> and she goes, yeah, that happened to a friend of mine. Oh my God. And I was just like, huh, that stinks. Yeah, where do you go? I, I don't know. Nowhere. I don't know. I just went into my next joke. I was like, anyway, so my girlfriend. <laughs> 
if I were in the audience, and I don't know if it's because I've got a dark sense of humor or I'm a comedian, but if I saw that, I think that would have been the funniest part of the night. Oh, I think I would have thought it was hilarious. Yeah. But none of the comics were in the room. So I didn't even get I didn't even get that like from the back of the room laugh when you bomb spectacularly. Oh, yeah. It was just a crowd like, God, what an ass. I hope it's because I'm a comedian, but when I'm at a show and, you know, I'll produce it or whatever, I'm in the back. I laugh harder when something doesn't work. Oh, from, definitely. From somebody. And, and, uh, I remember I was at a show and it was like an older audience and I've, I've worked with this comedian plenty of times and the joke just tanked and it, I'd seen it work before. And when it just bombed, I let out the biggest laugh in the back of the room yeah. and I was like, I don't know if I disrupted him or whatever. I, I hoped I didn't. But at the moment, I didn't care because that was beyond hilarious to me. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. When I'm in a show, I'll kind of smile at jo- – I mean, if something if, – if if I haven't heard a joke before and it's incredible, obviously I'll laugh. But usually at stand-up, I just kind of like smile. But I always yeah. laugh at people bombing. And then if somebody in the audience has a weird, funny laugh, I will laugh at their laugh. Right. But – yeah, I don't feel like I laugh that much when I'm just watching stand up, you know? No, I think it's not that good. You know what's no, funny, though? Memes. Memes are funny. People should do memes. <laughs> I think that's where the future is. Anyway. Way better so than It doesn't stand-up. really matter. No, I, I just think uh, at a certain point, like, you do stand up enough, you've seen enough of it. It's like, like uh, I was a sports writer for a while. When I got home, I didn't want to watch sports. And uh, you're at a comedy show all the time. And it's like, okay, yeah, I, I know because you can tell where the joke is going. So yeah. you like you race yourself to the punchline and it's like, okay, I got it. You know, I, I'm there and whatever. That's why I think I'm a horrible audience member, because like if you tell me a really good joke, I'm going to wonder how you got to that end point. Right. And forget to laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I sometimes think about if the, if everyone in an audience had the same humor and sense of or laughed at what I laughed at. They're like, couldn't even be stand up. It just right. like, wouldn't. Cause when I actually laugh at a comedian, usually, I mean, again, if they're incredible, I'll laugh like anybody, but for the most part, it's just if people say something that is so crazy weird that I can't believe that they had the gall to say that on stage. Like that's what I laugh at. Yeah. So um. yeah, just like good jokes. I mean, I like appreciate them, but I don't laugh out loud at them. Yeah. When I laugh out loud, um, and I did so a couple times at your special and like, which is like, it sounds insulting, but like I'm alone. Yeah. So it's like watching it, it on a TV though. On a TV. It was yeah. really it, 60 inch TV, man. You were, Damn. you were larger than life uh, or maybe lifelike. I don't know. But uh, no, it's just, it's just very hard for me to laugh out loud anytime. Yeah. So it's like, okay, you're like, like when it hits, it hits, but it just happens so infrequently to me that when it happens, I'm like, oh, I'll remember this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's very noteworthy. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I'll find I'll, – I'll watch, you know, famous people's specials. And I know if I was in the room, I would be laughing. But just watching yeah. it over TV, I think Bo Burnham in one of his specials had a good quip about it. Like after the special, he's just sitting there talking to the camera. And he's like, well, you may not have laughed at that. But I hope at some point you kind of like like exhaled out of your nose. You know, you went like – Right, right, right. Hopefully, hopefully you did that at least once. <laughs> so the special uh, giraffe in the shed, I got it right that time. That's out. Do you have any plans to do something else? I mean, are you going to make this a regular occurrence? Obviously not, maybe not always in your house, but uh, releasing something, you know, maybe every year or two years. Yeah, I'd love to do that if I can. It just depends on how quickly I can generate a new. I want to do an hour next, which I've never even done an hour long set before. So it's, I guess, ambitious, but yeah. And I want to, like I said, I'm really interested in crafting material now, like with a full hour in mind to see if that changes how the right, how like my writing process looks. Like maybe one story to tell, you know, like through lines or whatever. Yeah. I'm not going to be that story focused, I guess, but I don't know. I just, I I think at least for me earlier on, I would kind of write a joke. And then if I found one punchline that worked, I would go, Oh, thank God. Okay. Done with that one. Yeah. And now I'm trying to really like, all right, I got I got one punchline in this to work. Can I write like 10 more and just keep going deeper and deeper? Like I, w- I want to get to where if I'm going to bring up a topic, I talk about that topic for like six to 10 minutes. Because I mean, even yeah, in this I mean, special, I had transitions, mm-hmm. but I think I would hit a topic and talk about it for a minute or two and then usually jump to something else. Yeah, I'm always worried that I'm boring the audience. Like if I've got a deep bit, I'm like, okay, well, after the third or fourth line, do they care anymore? Do they give a shit? Like that's where I struggle. Okay, so do you do you normally do like longer stuff? Well, it's, it, I, I'm not a one liner. 
I try to do stories, uh, yeah. but not like I used to be a long storyteller and I, that didn't work. And so maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Uh, but I found that if I chop them up a little bit into sections, then they're more palatable to me. And I feel less pressure on me to, you know, I don't want to take up seven minutes of a mic or something like that by just doing one chunk of material. I'd rather do like, you know, a two minute bit, a three minute bit, a two minute bit. Um, so, and then eventually they'll go together, but you know, you could definitely see like, like the chapter lines, uh, yeah. with what I do. Yeah. I've been thinking about, I saw Bobby Kelly one time live Yeah, and he had this bit, it was something about like snow tubing, you know, about being fat and snow tubing. I can't remember how it went at all, but I remember he had kind of this setup, which had a couple of small jokes in it. But then once he got to the first punchline, he said like 19 punchlines in a row. It was just like every line was a laugh and each of the punchlines was good but there were some that were like fine but like because he said so many in a row in such rapid succession it worked the audience up into this like frenzy yeah where they were just like oh another one oh no like it was so that's what i i that's kind of been my like i'm interested in learning how to do that yeah that sounds amazing i, I mean uh, it looked very very hard like you know obviously he's very very good and i'm however good i am but um, <laughs> yeah yeah, but the thing is, like, Bobby Kelly has 19 punchlines in one joke. Does he have a giraffe in his house? I don't think so. But I didn't back then either. So, you know, there's okay. there's no time for him. <laughs> Maybe he does now. You don't know. Yeah. I mean, I got mine pretty recently. <laughs> what if there's, like, a trend of people during the pandemic just like, I'm going to get a giraffe statue? You know? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're a trendsetter. I hope, yeah, if that's what comes of the special, that would be that would be a job well done in my book. <laughs> if just one uh, person gets a big giraffe statue, then this was a success. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I'll we'll wrap it up. But like, uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, do you have social media to plug? I mean, obviously, you want people to watch the special. Promote what you, whatever you want. Yeah, you can follow me at Nick Hopping Comedy. Sometimes I post clips. Also follow Stand Up Ala Mode if you're in New York City and want to see a show in the freezing cold. I guess that's about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, man. This was a lot of fun. Dude, thank you. Uh, and I hope to see you on my TV very soon. Yeah, you as well. <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you in a bit. All right. Thanks. Bye. Peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I hope they let me in.